Automatically, when we feel safer, that we are capable of opening into higher emotional states, more clarified emotional states. We feel safe enough to poke our nose out into the world of higher mm, concepts, shall I say, and begin to have some faith arising in us. Welcome to the Wisdom of Compassion, a podcast presented by White Conch Dharma Center. For today's episode, we will be featuring a teaching by Domo Geshe Rinpoche, the spiritual director of White Conch, titled The Blossoming of Refuge. In this talk, Rinpoche discusses the Buddhist concept of refuge and looks at two ways to go for refuge. The first is going for refuge out of a desire for safety, and the second is going for refuge out of a compassionate wish. There's a powerful segment where Rinpoche likens the vulnerability and delicate innocence of someone in the process of awakening to a butterfly emerging from its cocoon. This really resonated with me, and I hope you're able to connect with this idea as well. We had a conversation the other night on refuge, and I shared with you some of my ideas about the suffering of individuality and how that uh, pertains to uh, issues regarding trust and issues regarding feelings of safety. And so our general discussion is a continuation of that discussion regarding refuge. Probably one of the important reasons why refuge is not much discussed uh, in the West uh, when Buddhist uh, teachers come uh, because the basis of uh, understanding refuge upon that basis are the many ramifications of the cult of individuality which you have become uh, trained in. And so we left off our discussion the other night understanding the very first aspect of refuge which is uh, acknowledging, which is the hard part here, acknowledging that you don't feel as safe as you uh, could or should be. And the reason why you don't feel that safe is because of the method by which your culture has demanded uh, that uh, you not actually held in the net of safety, and only gradually, only gradually uh, allowed to make choices. It's almost antithetical to the pride that one gains in individuality. And so you, as Buddhists or interested in Buddhism, are left with a dilemma how to trust uh, the Buddha. Now, in the Oriental uh, societies, we have a very careful explanation of how the uh, Buddha is actually more safe than your family. More safe than your family. And in fact, the safety, the deep safety that even in the Orient 
that deep sense of safety is not as reliable as safety, the safety you will experience by relying on the Buddha. We can say here that the Buddha that we're talking about is simultaneously the historical Buddha who had trust issues with his own father, you know, like that. If you didn't read, at least you saw the movie, huh? And uh, many of the important ideas uh, that you uh, have heard about are based upon this breaking of trust that the Buddha had with his father. And instead, he went off to find out what is this real? If you think about your own family, how marvelously close you were held so that you felt safe to whatever degree. Now imagine what it was like for the Buddha who was held extremely closely. The Buddha came to understand that there was another method that was even more safe than the safety he found in his family life. And that is what he ran away to find out. Not because things weren't going well. In fact, they were going too well. <laughs> and his internal awakening, because he, well, in most traditions, he's considered to already have been enlightened. And so his alerting, his alerting, it caused him to emerge and wake up. And he said, this isn't, this isn't enough. I want to know the truth. And so he left. After having discovered the truth, after many years, he came into a, uh, a great awakening. And so what he was doing was he was waking up to the tremendous responsibility of being a world teacher. And that meant he had to be very big. Over here at Art Asia, I just did a book reading. And I asked, uh, I asked people, where does, this, where does the alert state on the outside and still being able to remain in one's practice inside, where does that bigger come from? It's because you grow bigger inside without diminishing, without being diminished on the outside. And so this tremendous emergence into world teacher caused the Buddha to enter into a relationship with the world and all of the inhabitants of this world in a way that was enlivening. Not only was he the world teacher, but they began a lineage of many, many of his students who became like world teachers themselves. Now you can't do that unless the root is very strong. And uh, like that, like that, the uh, Buddha's enlightened students are the example Sangha, community of enlightened beings who after receiving this extraordinary uh, transmission and teachings over a very long time, 
became objects of refuge themselves. But Sangha is not the same as Buddha, that they are another aspect of refuge. And the third object of refuge, which is the Dharma, is, is the teachings of the Buddha and the associated teachings of the path, which is the actual refuge. We discussed the other night issues regarding uh, fear that we either acknowledge or don't acknowledge. It seems to be a very big part of psychological growing up when you finally admit that you may have been operating from a position of fear. It's an enormous cathartic realization that one only gets after a very, very long time of working with their uh, issues. The issue isn't my fear, the issue is other people. Or it's uh, trust. And after a long, long time, then people, after having thought about these other problems, they realize that the basis, that the basis that they were operating from was fear. The refuge, the refuge which is offered, based on resolving, based on resolving fear, means that there has to be safety. There has to be safety bigger than your fear. Most practitioners realize that refuge based on compassion is the one that they are going to choose because that's the highest form of refuge. And so they take refuge based upon the compassion that they wish to uh, demonstrate toward others that they themselves go for refuge so that their compassion will be the highest quality compassion commensurate with their own values that they hold. They want to do compassion practices, they want to become more compassionate, and therefore the matching set, like the neckerchief and the tie and the socks and, and the little pocket handkerchief, the full set, compassion all the way. Huh? Good thinking? Not at all. <laughs> this is like a fat Santa trying to get down the chimney to steal something. All right, a fake fat Santa trying to jump down the chimney and getting stuck in the chimney because compassion, refuge, out of compassion cannot work until you have overcome your main issue. And so you cannot fly up in the sky and try to dive down the chimney uh, to, take, uh, to take refuge as though it was a prize sitting under the tree if you could only just get down. Huh? Once our fears, our natural fears, have been somewhat allayed, we then automatically, automatically, when we feel safer, that we are capable of opening into higher 
emotional states, more clarified emotional states. Isn't that so? We feel safe enough to poke our nose out into the world of higher mm, concepts, shall I say, and begin to have some faith arising in us. Up until that point, there is no faith. Having no trust and having faith would be mutually exclusive. And so we cannot, as long as we have trust issues, as long as we are experiencing manifest fear, as long as we are experiencing lack of safety, it's an unreasonable feeling. We have to have, we have to be able to go somewhere that we feel safe and we hear about the qualities of refuge and we feel that whereas in our life we have not felt as safe as we wanted to, especially if you are going to start the, what they call the chrysalis or the cocoons of the butterflies and to begin to have this delicacy in your own nature. Have you ever been in one of these wonderful butterfly parks? Ah, so amazing. You walk through and there's butterflies landing on you and everywhere you look. So delicate. You feel like, oh my gosh, I have to tiptoe through this place. I don't want to uh, step on, on any of this delicacy. And so our butterflies are about to uh, blossom or emerge from their cocoons. This time of spiritual awakening is very tender. The rawness of the dysfunctions are like a big wind to your butterflies. You want to feel that you are in a very safe place where there are no predators, where you feel comfortably vulnerable. This sense of what most people in the West call this bad word of vulnerable is actually the tenderness of the environment that you need to emerge. That as soon as this feeling of vulnerability comes to most people, they want to just pull in and lock down, and they don't want to uh, emerge. They don't literally like that. They don't want to emerge. We must learn how to be happy in this vulnerable feeling and stop using that word in the negative way and see it in the glorious positive way. You've already experienced it. This is the delicacy of your own nature. This vulnerability, this beautiful emergence, 
coming from this zone of safety inside. Why? Because you've tied your heart to a star. A great star of refuge of the Buddha. And so you are grounded. You are grounded in correct refuge. You cannot perform the act of emergence into the state of refuge in higher levels until you get this piece careful. Now, you can work on it a day and get it. You can work on it here tonight and get it. Or a week, or the rest of your life, or in some future life, you say, I think I'll just suffer in my issues this life and the next few lives until I <laughs> figure it out. Because you aren't going to get on with it until you do. Now what you cannot do, what you cannot do if you say, I'm going to overcome my trust issues by just trusting everyone, it actually doesn't work that way that we need to have the counterweight of our refuge inside of safety before we can trust outside. You know, in, uh, when I was in Bangkok and I went to the um, Emerald Palace, the king's, the royal palace, and in many places, they had had these huge statues, some like uh, 12, 14 feet tall, made out of stone, marble, beautiful statues like that. But they looked Chinese. I thought, where do these Chinese statues come from in, uh, in Bangkok? And here they are. They weren't Thai. I said, where did these come from? And someone kindly explained that in the early days of uh, shipping that the merchants would go from Thailand in their boats and go to uh, deliver goods, whatever it was, I don't remember, to China. And they would empty the boats, but if they came back empty, the winds would knock them over, they would, they would uh, be gone, would sink their ships. And so they needed ballast. <laughs> so they could have just taken any big old rocks. They thought, well, why do that? And so they carried back these very heavy statues as ballast. And so like that, that this refuge is your ballast, and when that is there, you are balanced going here only because that is inside of you. You feel safe inside. And so you can display this emergence and fear becomes faith. Fear becomes faith. Why? Because 
you have an experience of faith. Because faith is the joy of refuge. You feel happy and the butterfly emergence of your delicious vulnerability and sensitivities are balanced by the heaviness of the power of your refuge. Only when we arrive at the state of faith, refuge is faith, in this environment, like if you can imagine sitting in this, uh, sitting in this uh, wonderful sunroom, I'm going to say, huge, huge sunroom with butterflies moving around, all different kinds, your eyes are lit up, that you feel like everything is okay. That is the kind of faith that we know that the safety of our, that, that we reside already in the safety of our uh, refuge. And now we are experiencing the results of that safety, which is faith. Only when this environment and I saying, imagine this place of butterflies. This is the environment. This is the, the tendril. As I was talking about uh, just a, a short time ago this evening. <clears throat> this is the tendril of your existence. And this is the environment in which the Dharma is presented to you. Now, doesn't that make sense? You become the butterfly keeper and the environment, the entire environment is the living Dharma, is the living Dharma. And beyond this, you feel open enough, open enough so that the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of the path, the living path, to perfection is part of your life. And so those of you who take refuge three times in the morning and three times at night with prostrations are physically capable, as we say. <laughs> as in the sadhana. Still have much to learn about uh, the environment that you wish to be alive in called refuge. This makes a very good student. You clean your face, the face of a student who is active in this refuge, they are bright. Their faces look bright. They are uh, suitable to teach the Dharma. Before this, it's all triage. You know triage? <laughs> Who's the worst of walking wounded? This one is this and this and this and like that. 
and Lama is uh, willing to do a great amount of triage to get people to the place where they can actually receive the teachings. Make sense? All right. Not only, not only do we self-affirm by the uh, results, by the happy results that we gain from this, uh, from this feeling of faith. We didn't even know what it was called before. Maybe we've even had it. Maybe you had a school teacher who was so terrific that whatever they said, you took in like a sponge. They would say good morning. You say, oh, they're just such a great teacher. <laughs> they didn't even say anything. You just had to hear their name. And you would turn around in the hall and say, oh, isn't that a great teacher? I took classes from that person last year. Ah, oh, you're going to love them. They're great. Like this we talk about. The Buddha and the great teachers. Because it brings us joy. You can just see, practically see the, the butterflies coming out. Even you talking about, for those of you who have this kind of uh, a refuge in faith, you're talking about your practice with someone. They want to know. They see it alive in you and they say, oh, on, an, on their inner eye, oh, butterflies. How you do that? <laughs> they even say to her, they even tell you, like, what is it with you? Why are you always uh, like that? Make sense? And so this environment, you don't have just with your three prostrations in the morning and three, three recitations and three recitations in the evening. But wherever you go, your refuge interpenetrates and surrounds you. Oh, you can do anything. You can go anywhere. You can do anything. This is what we want to be. This is the kind of person we want to be. We don't want to be all shriveled down and having to be... Uh, shaken awake a little bit each time. We want to be alive. And so this heaviness, this appropriate heaviness, is safety. The emergence is the feeling of correct vulnerability, receptivity. Receptivity to what? Rock and roll? I don't think so. <laughs> and so, receptivity to learn. This only way you become suitable to receive the teachings. This uh, here, description of faith. The first kind of faith is vivid faith, vivid faith. This faith can be awakened as, a, as an alivement of faith. You know this, uh, this uh, story, I mean, excuse me, when you go to a movie 
and uh, they have a music that starts out very small and it goes like that. That you walk into an environment or you meet a person who has faith. You go to a temple and you see a Buddha statue. Some people, they see a Buddha statue first time in their life and they cry that uh, seeing representations from your earlier alivement of faith. You're not even a Buddhist, maybe. You see there's a Buddha statues. And you feel this crescendo. <laughs> and then you feel shy. You think, oh, this, uh, this uh, was an accident. <laughs> but it's not an accident. It's a remembrance of this vivid faith. That people don't understand even their own mind. And so they think, I don't know why I felt so sad that I cried. And when I, uh, when I read the story of uh, the Buddha, because they have always associated tears uh, with uh, sadness. Many people, I've had many people come to me who've had similar, uh, similar ideas. They said, I felt, uh, I felt so sad I was crying, but I wasn't sad. <laughs> they can't describe their own emotions. The feelings come so strong that uh, the tears come out the eyes because the energy, the energy cannot be contained. And so combined, you know, if you're going to look at this in a dysfunctional way, why? But let's describe it anyway. That this feeling of vulnerability, you say, well, I'm never going to do that again. I went into this Buddhist temple and uh, I saw these amazing statues. I started to cry. I'm never going back there. <laughs> Existing in this, uh, we go back now to the positive side, uh, that this is called vivid faith. Secondly, uh, second description is eager faith. Eager faith is our eagerness to be free of the sufferings of lower realms when we hear them described. Eagerness to enjoy the happiness of higher realms and of liberation when we hear what they are. Our eagerness to engage in positive actions when we hear what benefits they bring and our eagerness to avoid negative actions when we understand what harm they cause. This is because of this amazing vulnerability that you have found, you begin to feel things more strongly. And we could call this enthusiasm could call it enthusiasm. And for a person who is highly educated, that you may uh, choose to not uh, experience the feelings that you're already experiencing because it doesn't match your, your intellectual grasp of, your, of who you are. It doesn't match who you are. That in our oriental system, we don't have this suppression of our eagerness. In fact, we are encouraged in our eagerness. Many times I've said that we don't 
in our system that we don't approve of this excessive excitement which seems to be the hallmark of having fun is to get so excited that you can't think straight and then you know you're really having fun <laughs> because you don't know who you are anymore in this excess of fun. And we, so we try not to get excited. However, we reserve a kind of excitement, eagerness, enthusiasm like this for this arising from our own center which just overwhelms our mind. Well, for example, uh, eagerness to enjoy the happiness of higher liberations by hearing what they are, we think, oh yeah, that's for me, that's what I want. Or you, can, or you hear about, it doesn't always have to be positive. You can hear about the detriments of the possibility of accumulating causes and conditions to wind up in one of the lower realms. And your eagerness makes you go like this, and you think, oh my God, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to, don't want to go there. This is also called eagerness. So eagerness doesn't always have to be ha 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 ha. It is a kind of inner ignition that's coming from your subconscious mind, which is why you cannot control it with your intellectual faculties. That your emergence and vulnerability breaks down the barriers between you and your own mind so that you are more clear to express extraordinary emotions associated with spiritual development. Doesn't that make sense? And so in the privacy of the privacy, I know, I know many of you do this on the privacy of your own meditation cushion that you'll laugh. Have you ever done that? Were you just sitting there? And people came in, they think you're some kind of a fool. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, you haven't said a word, you're just, <laughs> just enjoying. You feel eager. You had something that went Pow! made you laugh. You think, oh, must have been some joke told inside. I didn't hear the. <laughs> I didn't hear anything, but I got the part about the laughing. <coughs> or sometimes you'll be sitting there and tears will come out your eyes and this time you really feel bad. But you're not thinking about anything in particular. If you didn't have, if you didn't have this whole thing happening within, your, within the spiritual context, people would worry about you. <laughs> Isn't that so? But there you are, and they're sitting on your cushion. No one can blame you at all. <laughs> this eagerness is a sign that the veils between your gross mind and your subconscious or inner minds, I'm going to say more subtle minds, 
are beginning to thin. Did you know that? And from that, from that, comes a new kind of evanescent you, which doesn't have to explain why it's happy. It doesn't have to explain why it is suddenly moved. And I'm going to call this moved rather than eager. That some things move you. Sometimes you will see someone on the street or you'll be at a movie and something inside you beyond your own comprehension, nothing that you're thinking about, suddenly you want to just run out of the theater because you want to cry. You become more open, more capable, and this is because you have made that transition to refuge's faith. And the only way this works, the only ways that your faith will work, is if you are stabilized and still feel safe inside uh, with correct front door refuge. All right? And so we go in the front door, and then we explore, and we come alive to the uh, marvels of this uh, new understanding of refuge. Hmm? For those of you who are therapists and uh, counselors, the method by which you want to help others, even a friend, even a friend who's in, in problems, what do we do first if you don't have uh, a degree, many degrees on the wall like that, that, and a friend is having difficulties, what do we do first? Listen, give them a hug. Give them a hug. Yeah. And this hug, this hug signifies the opening of uh, feel safe again. You're in, in effect, you're in a nonverbal way, you're saying feel safe again. And sometimes that works. Sometimes that, that works. And only then can you begin to talk or to uh, uh, let them feel safe enough to be able to emerge. This feeling of, uh, this feeling of being okay, that you have to explain to people that this feeling that you get once you feel safe and that you want to step out don't see that as a bad thing, although it feels funny. New levels of openness, and now I'm not talking about, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's this couple of, couple of issues here. And when you're doing serious practice, what you don't want to do is to, uh, is to, uh, open the inner vaults of your of your practice energies, etc. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the levels, like the the table wine. Okay, offering the table wine and the fine wines you keep behind in your in your inner practice. But the the other part is part of this emergence 
You came into this world to have a nonverbal contact with the energy of this world. True? Why don't you do it? Why don't you touch the world? It's all around you. We were born to come here to interact with this a world. Why? Why? <laughs> because it's what you need in order to transform to the next stage of development. Remember you're on the, that you're in your inner being is on the way uh, to perfection. It's on an evolutionary journey to perfection. There are certain things that you're here to, that you're here to learn. And you can't learn them unless you're not, unless you cannot learn these lessons unless you are actually here. And once you are here, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Open and be part of the environment in which you live. If you have careful refuge that you can do anything, that you can emerge and be open anywhere. You can be open and standing in the middle of what they call Times Square. Steady daily practice, reading about refuge, gaining confidence, gaining confidence, and developing the stability uh, stability of, uh, of correct refuge. Not refuge out of compassion, but refuge uh, from uh, safety. If you want to say, if you want to think, I have an ex existential problem with a possibility of falling to the lower realms, I do not want to fall to the lower realms. My mother and father cannot help me in this situation. They are in the same boat as I am, without ballast. And they are the ones who are going to protect me from going to the lower realms? No. Who will protect me after I pass away from this world? Read about the, read about the objects of refuge in, uh, in our tradition especially when we're reading about uh, the possibility of going to the lower realms, etc., etc. That uh, the traditional advice is you read it until the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Now, you think you can do that? Yes, you can. How many lifetimes? How many lifetimes do you want to wait before you can, before you want, before you're going to decide that being safe is what is important. We are not safe by withdrawing. We are not safe by building walls and barriers between us and others. That's, that you have tried for countless lives and it hasn't worked so far. And so now we're going to feel safe in a way that actually produces the desired result. Before everyone has to be a therapist, <laughs> Rinpoche, 
as I'm thinking about what you've been saying and the question that Tekshin is raising, is it true that to touch the energy of the world, to really, to really be able to do that skillfully, that you have to be alive? And that you could be refuge, on your way. You could be on your way to yeah, being alive. But refuge allows you to be alive carefully. Carefully. Yes. And so, what we can learn through being alive in refuge and touching the world. I'm thinking about the opposite of that, <laughs> where you, if you're, if you're just trying to, in an ordinary way, touch the world, then you, you can't really learn and you can't develop. So it's yes. this process of really... Letting go. Letting go. And being present. So part of this uh, issue about touching the energy of the world, this can only happen uh, in the present moment. Thank you. So, yes. Can I have another question? Okay, good. <laughs> Because if I ask you alone, you say, why don't you wait till teaching? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're to teaching. All right. So after listening to you and, and Shani, thought that occurs to me, and I want to know if I'm even going the right direction here, is in order to be trained to become benefit beings, yes. we have to be capable of functioning anywhere. Even difficult places, not difficult places, mixed places, yes. anywhere. Is that part of why we need to touch the energy of this world is to learn how to function anywhere? I believe you become capable of functioning in many different situations. Why? Because you feel okay. And uh, I don't know if you really feel comfortable with having a part-time life where at home when you're alone and then you feel okay. But as soon as there's somebody else there, uh, you don't feel okay. How many people, how many people uh, can, should, could be there and you still feel okay? Two or 12 or 100 or 1,000 that, uh, that uh, do you have to have an increasing amount of refuge in order to be with 100 people than if you had one other person there. Some people don't even feel safe around themselves, and that's really hard. Does that, did I answer your question, or did I just ask a further question? Mm -hmm. Almost any answer will get me to a further question. That's <laughs> point. But, but uh, you started to all, I need to cogitate on it. Okay. Sure. Yes. So this, this ingredient, this very, this very important ingredient of refuge. Yes. In, in touching the energy of the world, um, is it is it is it that ingredient that creates that that kind of uh, you might use the word careful? Um, so so one stops looking at themselves. Yes, you know, the, uh, an effect, uh, an, an important element of refuge, thank you, I don't know if I'll answer this exactly, but an important element of refuge is that the object that you have been looking at inside yourself 
has always been yourself. The very object, the very inner core of you has been self-referent. And uh, in that way, whenever you really want to do something, when you want to concentrate, when you want to make sure that this happens, when you're making any kind of effort whatsoever, that you begin to look at yourself even more strongly inside. That the problem is that this object that you are looking at inside in order to be able to function at your high level has only been you. A good quality object, of course, because you're nice people. <laughs> what if there was a higher quality object to look at? That your sense of need has not diminished. Your neediness to look at yourself will not end for a long time. But what refuge, a feature of refuge, is that now you're looking at something else that's not you. Big difference in how you feel about yourself, your world, and uh, those around you simply because you're not looking at yourself, you're still looking in the same place, but you have invited the object of refuge and the object of refuge, because Buddha is the world teacher of our age, has consented well, to stand in the place or perhaps even hiding you <laughs> like this, don't look at yourself. <laughs> that this valid, what we call a valid inner object in the logic, it's a valid inner object which either hides or replaces depending upon where you are at in your process. And for those who have developed a higher nature in previous lives, are seeking that they're not satisfied with the delivery system of this ineffectual self that they have been given. They're not happy. They want to return. They feel as though something is missing. They want to return to this special interior object. And they feel small, even though they knew greatness before. They remember their greatness. But they have to be satisfied with just like this little toasty sandwich thing like that. It's like living a small. You feel like you're living small. For enlightened beings who come here to this world to be of benefit, such as Lord Buddha Shakyamuni and the Buddhist Bodhisattvas and the Buddhas who come here, they must endure the delivery system of the innate view in order to arrive here carefully 
in the human realm, and then they must throw it off. And how they do it is in stages also having the valid, valid refuge. This is why people who are skillful, even young people, and especially old people, because that's when you found out about it, seek guidance in order to acquire this inner object. Isn't that marvelous? This is why refuge is so important because the inner object is bestowed and especially in initiation that you receive inner object that you look at and as you look at it, you begin to remember who you are. You only knew who you were before because you saw yourself inside. You go, oh, yeah, this is who I am. This is the kind of person I am. And you recognize yourself. Now, the deeper Buddhist practices say, now recognize this. And that is the valid inner object. And this is real. And the funny thing is that it seems like it's not real. It seems like we're just talking about uh, unicorns and, uh, and uh, people flying on carpets, mind readers, like it's just some kind of magical, mystical, like a Peter Pan. But in fact, you've been living the Peter Pan life. Not only that, but you've suffered. You've been suffering and continue to suffer from your individuality, which separates you from everything which is life. We are not diminished by refuge, that we are enhanced because this is literally our remembering device. We begin to remember like a Buddha, which has the marvelous and magical effect of transforming us in every part of our being. And this is the deeper form of refuge. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on whatever platform you're listening. You can stay up to date on White Conch news and events at white-conch.org updates and can find all our social media links and blog posts at white-conch.org podcast. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out the next episode as we continue our exploration of compassion.